0: Days grow shorter as the nights grow long. We welcome the season with treats and with song. As We Eat has some spooky new tales and history of these sweet treats to regale. Come gather and hear these stories all round about colorful sugar skulls that do abound and pan de muerto or bread of the dead, all meant for cheer and none for dread. Welcome to As We Eat
1: share some fun facts, and some that aren't so fun, talk about food history, and how food connects and defines us.
0: So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Hey, Kim, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Enjoyed celebrating that spooky holiday season in Nashville, of all places. How about you?
1: How fun. We actually celebrated in Montana. It was pretty fun. We didn't get a lot of but. That's okay. I still had fun and got dressed up.
0: Still my favorite time of the year. I miss the trick-or-treaters at home as well. I just love the way that people get together and celebrate this holiday. Me too. And you know what? Today is the first day of a very unique annual celebration centered on the thinning of the veil between life and death. And that is Dia de los Muertos, or Day of the Dead. This holiday originates from Mexico, but is now celebrated broadly around the world. UNESCO included this tradition in its representative list of the intangible cultural heritage of humanity in 2008. There's a lot of really iconic imagery associated with this holiday. Costumed skeletons dressed in everyday clothes, from the simple shirt and pants of the laboring man to the elegant finery of a high society lady known as La Cachina. Pathways of bright orange marigold petals that mark pathways for spirits to find the household ofrendas, full of photos of departed loved ones, along with their favorite food and drinks like tamales, chocolate, mole, oranges, and more. Rich rounds of bread adorned with bones and skulls. Calaveras, or skulls, decorated lavishly with bright colors, patterns, and sweet iconography like hearts, butterflies, and flowers. We're going beyond the veil for some insight into the history and spectacle of Dia de los Muertos and what its food traditions mean for people who celebrate the joy of life with icons of death. Leigh, let's start with the origin of the holiday.
1: All right, let's. The roots of Dia de los Muertos goes back almost 3,000 years. Dia de los Muertos, or Day of the Dead, is, as Kim mentioned, a Mexican holiday. It's celebrated on November 1st and 2nd. It's meant to honor family members who have died. It's believed that for these two days, the gates of heaven are opened and the spirits are allowed to return to earth. The spirits of the children return first on November 1st, and the adult spirits join the party on November 2nd. Now the celebration also coincides with the Christian holidays of All Saints Days and All Souls Day, and that, my friends, is no coincidence. As I mentioned, the celebration of death was centuries old when the Spanish and their theology came a knocking on Mesoamerica's door. To understand how these two dates overlap, we need to look at the belief of the day in Mesoamerica. The Aztecs and the Nahua, both indigenous to what we now call Mexico, had several festivals of remembrance. Now their view on the universe was cyclical, and death was an integral component of this cycle. So much so that when I say Aztecs, I'm sure that the first thing many of you think of is human sacrifice. And I'm not going to get into much of this other than to say that it's important to consider that the Aztecs didn't take pleasure in making sacrifices generally. It simply was a way to keep things in balance. It was part of the cycle. A way to ensure that the gods were appeased and that their survival was secured. To them, death wasn't unnatural. So now back to the Remembrance Festivals. When a person died, they were believed to embark on a journey through the land of the dead, Chikinamiklin. This journey was long, and in order to help them, the living would provide food, drink, and tools to help their loved ones to reach Miklin, which was the final resting area. This likely inspired the ritual construction of ofrendas, sometimes referred to as an altar, but more accurately, a place of offering. And we're going to talk a little bit more about the ofrendas in a bit. I want to go back to the correlation of the Day of the Dead and All Saints and All Souls Days. As you can imagine, the Spanish missionaries tried their darndest to unseat these pagan death rituals, but they were deeply seated in the culture. So rather than beating them, they joined them in a sense. The days of All Saints Day and All Souls Day and Day of the Dead were combined in what Martha Ramirez Oropesa, a UCLA professor and expert on Dia de los Muertos, refers to as syncretism, the amalgamation of different cultures. So essentially two traditions becoming one new tradition. And you definitely see this in Dia de los Muertos. You see the Catholic influence in a lot of the religious rituals, as well as prehistoric culture especially when it comes to food and the concept of chapitla*, which is a Nahuatl word referring to an image acting as a substitute for something or someone. And the act of cooking is a fabulous example of this concept. Take the creation myth of the Aztecs. Quetzalcoatl and his twin Xolat Aztec gods journey to Mictlan, the final resting place of the dead, to collect bones that they bring back to the goddess Siakotl to help in the creation of humans. She uses a matate to grind the bones in preparation for creation. And a matate is an oblong stone that's used to grind grains and cocoa to be used in food preparation. So essentially, in the act of cooking, you're symbolically creating or recreating yourself. Now, there are two foods that Kim mentioned used in the Celebration of Dia de los Muertos that also helped to convey this concept, Pan de Muerto and the sugar skulls. So Kim, what can you tell us about Pan de Muerto?
0: I'm really excited to talk about this because we get to continue this theme about Catholicism and the Aztecs and Mesoamerican culture. All of this is represented by a single loaf of sweet bread or pendulce that is traditionally flavored with orange and anise, making a really sweet aroma that's meant to recall fond memories. Although it's relatively simple to make, the commemorative bread is really only made and sold in late October and rarely past the last days of celebration, so really by the end of this week, you're not going to find it so easily in stores. Recent surveys indicate that up to 94% of Mexican residents eat pan de muerto during the holiday, and the total estimated consumption between October 30th and November 2nd is approximately 30 million pieces of bread. Wow, a lot of bread in one week, right? Yeah, that's just the scale of how important this is to Mm. the Dia de los Muertos celebration into Mexican culture. Panda Muerto is one of those food traditions that is both a concept and a real food to eat, meaning that you can find hundreds of recipes, each with a signature twist that speaks to the baker's preference or just a family food way. Food scholars estimate that there are up to 1,200 different kinds of panda muerto found across Mexico, with each region or state boasting its own version that incorporates a special ingredient or a particular decoration. States with a higher indigenous population tend to be a little bit more decoratively shaped. According to the Mexican Food Journal, bakers in Oaxaca make large figures in the form of the human body, the head formed from flour and water, and hand-painted in colorful detail while the body is composed from dough flavored by anise and vanilla. In the state of Guantano, cinnamon-flavored bread is shaped like animals or in the form of humans called almas. Within the city of Acambaro. adult almas are covered with a white glaze with a dot of pink or red sugar, while the children's forms are all white. Speaking of children, smaller toy pieces of bread and the shapes of fish, horses, chickens, and dolls are sometimes prepared, especially for the family ofrendas, to appeal to those who died young. And as you mentioned, Le, those children are welcomed back into the home on November 1st, today. Mm. The most classic and familiar shape for panda marto, though, is the ojaldra. This is a round symbolizing the circle of life and death, topped with a small ball and a cross phalanx representing the skull and bones, or perhaps suggesting the crown and cross of the church. In Hidalgo, Oaxaca, and Mexico City, the bread may also be sprinkled with sesame seeds to represent tears, or dusted with red or pink sugar to perhaps represent blood. And here's where the story of Muerto is about to get darker, because this food tradition does span a time between when Aztec indigenous culture ruled the lands we called Mexico, and when European Spaniards sailed across the Atlantic in search of gold, spices, and that famed fountain of youth. The most broadly repeated myth about pandemuertos is that when European conquistadors encountered the Aztec people, the Catholic priests reviled their sacrifice rituals and worked to replace the mythos of that ceremonial offering and display of the heart from a sacrificed human or animal with a new anima. Indigenous food culture, largely centered around maize as a predominant cereal crop, Although an early amaranth wheat may have been used in food eating rituals, where amaranth, honey, and human blood were combined to form a sort of proto-bread shared by the community. In the 1500s, when Europeans brought Catholicism, wheat, and sugar to the Americas, conquistadors from Spain and Portugal, particularly those from Castile, Aragon, and Sicily, Exchange the rituals with the example of votive offerings, or pan de animus, or soul bread, for all saints and faithful departed, as well as co-opted symbols to move indigenous people towards Catholicism, just like we said before. For example, that ball and cross that we find on the Ohaldra could also represent the four cardinal points of a compass, each ruled by an Aztec god. Quetzalcoatl, god of light and wind, Shipe Totec, god of death and rebirth, Tlaloc, god of rain and storms, and Tezcatlipoca, goddess of darkness and sorcery. There is a version of the story of Mexico that is familiar to kids of a certain era, and that is of the great conquistadors encountering a bloodthirsty tribe of cannibal savages. Please note that I am saying this with deep sarcasm and great melodrama. Well, unfortunately, we have turned a more measured and scientific eye now towards the past. To this point in his book, Skulls to the Living, Bread to the Dead, historian and anthropologist Stanley Brandes says, quote, to the question of European versus indigenous origins, there can be no simple resolution until more extensive colonial sources come to light. For now, evidence indicates that the Mexican Day of the Dead is a colonial invention a unique product of colonial demographic and economic processes. The principal types and uses of food on this holiday definitively derive from Europe. After all, there is no tortilla de muertos, but rather pan de muertos, just one highly significant detail. Nor did sugarcane exist in the Americas prior to the Spanish conquest. The existence of special breads and sugar-based sweets, the custom of placing these and other food substances on grave sites and altars, and the practice of begging and other distributive mechanisms all derive from spain at the same time the particular anthropomorphic form that day of the dead sweets assume is a part of both spanish and aztec traditions i really want to highlight that last sentence i'm going to read it one more time at the same time the particular anthropomorphic form that day of the dead sweets assume is part of both spanish and aztec traditions this combination of Spanish and indigenous culinary habits and tastes no doubt culminated in the ofrenda patterns we observe today. The ofrenda itself is probably Spanish, although it has long assumed significance in Mexico that far outstrips that in the mother country, End quote. If you'd like to read more, we have a link to Brandeis's book in our show notes. The symbol of human sacrifice, transmogrified by bread, probably sounds a little familiar to anyone who takes communion, where the ritual meaning of, quote, eating the dead correlates with a sense of taking in the essence of the person being remembered. In Mexico, Professor José Luis Curiel Monteneguado, I'm so sorry, sir, for mispronouncing your name, says this of the tradition, quote, eating the dead is a true pleasure for the Mexican. It is considered the anthropophagy of bread and sugar. The phenomenon is assimilated with respect and irony. Death is challenged. They make fun of it by eating it, end quote. In this way, I'm reminded of the themes that we explored in our Super Bowl Foods episode, where we assume the power and the traits of that which we eat. In the case of Roman gladiators, you might assume the power of an ox, while with Pan de Muerto, you subsume the positive qualities of an ancestor or a loved one, maybe their patience, kindness, valor, or something else. The other thing that I think is interesting is that while Pan de Muerto is eaten at home or during a graveyard visit, some of it is meant to be placed on the ofrenda or brought to the graveyard, where spirits absorb the essence of the bread. And these spirit breads are not to be eaten by the living, like an intentional division between the worlds of the living and the dead. That is their offering. That is for them. Do not mess with it. Modern interpretation of the origin of Pranda Muerto it to pre-Hispanic preparations completely unrelated to ritual sacrifice. The National Institute of Indigenous Peoples correlates panda muerto with papalotal axicali, a butterfly shaped tortilla offering for women who died in childbirth. Another possible ancestor of panda muerto, and a theory championed by the Mexican government, may be that of huita tamale, a votive tamale offering. The reality, though, is that the ingredients of panda reveal its European origins wheat, cane sugar, cow's milk, butter, eggs and orange all arrived in America in what is known as the Columbian Exchange. And ironically, although panda animus may have inspired panda muertos, this tradition actually has all but disappeared with the industrialization of Europe. You can't go to a European graveyard and find the same scale of ceremony and Mm. the significance. So, Madame Lay, what can you tell me about those beautiful sugar skulls that I just love and adore? I do too. And you
1: know, it's really interesting because I'm going to continue with this syncretism that you just talked about of the Catholic and Aztec Nahua cultures. The sugar skull is kind of a baby child of this union. The skull, as you might remember, is not a new symbol to the Mesoamericans. Skulls themselves symbolize rebirth and overcoming the fear of death. So when the missionaries brought with them this tradition of sugar art to adorn altars of the Catholic Church, the indigenous saw a way to utilize an abundant commodity of sugar, also brought to Mesoamerica by the Spanish, to create a decoration for their religious festivals. Creating figurines from food, as you had mentioned before, was not new to the Aztecs. They would combine amaranth, honey, and in some cases human blood to create figurines that they would bake and consume. We have talked at length about this ingestion of food, as you had mentioned, to obtain these certain qualities and characteristics of the food or the regions in which they were grown or in this case, characteristics of the humans that gave their lives. And this tradition for the Aztecs was very symbolic of this concept. They believed that amaranth was a food of the gods, and that, again, the blood would impart the qualities of the person that was sacrificed. And I want to point out that in Aztec culture, it was an honor to be sacrificed. You were helping to ensure the existence of your culture. And yes, I realize that there were sacrifices made by the unwilling, but that's a different tine in the fork that we may take later. As you can imagine, this tradition was looked on with great disgust by the Spaniards, who decided to do what any logical person would do to a staple crop of a culture. They burnt the amaranth fields and outlawed the grain entirely to the extent that it almost amaranth didn't exist at all.
0: Yeah, that's crazy.
1: So using sugar to create these ceremonial figurines was quickly embraced. Clay molds were made in the shape of skulls, filled with sugar paste mixture, and then allowed to dry. In true celebratory fashion, they were decorated with colorful icings, feathers, glittery adornments, which were unique to each of the deceased individuals. It often represented their desires, their likes, and their wants. And as each skull represents a departed family member, their name is often included somewhere in the skull. Now, these clay molds were often passed down through families, and they had these unique qualities that you could actually determine which family the skull belonged to. Sadly, as with so many arts, the making of the sugar skulls has been co-opted by commercial companies who make them much quicker and cheaper. Now, there are generally two sizes of sugar skulls, small and large. The smaller ones represent the children who have passed, and the larger ones for deceased adults, and they're actually placed on the ofrenda in a specific order. The smaller skulls are placed on the ofrenda on November 1st, when the children's spirits visit, and the larger skulls on November 2nd, when the adult spirits arrive for the celebrations. Now, my favorite symbolism of these ceremonial confections is that they represent the sweet Of life,
0: I've seen them as you as you pointed out. You know they're commercially very popular, and I do actually kind of like the blending of like lacachina with the sugar skulls. I didn't know that about the different sizes. Actually, yeah, I, I didn't either. I guess I didn't, and I certainly didn't realize the iconography maybe was meant to be distinctly tied to an individual. And they're not meant to be eaten at all, right? Like,
1: No, they are not meant to be eaten, much like the pan de muerta. These are mm-hmm. back to the concept of the ofrenda being a place of offering yeah. rather than just an altar. You are offering these up to the spirits.
0: What a rich culture.
1: You mentioned La Catrina, which I think is really fascinating. This really doesn't have much to do with food, but it does have to do with the celebration of Day of the Dead. Have you ever heard of Santa Muerta?
0: I have a little bit, but I actually don't know very much about her. Can you tell me more?
1: I can. She's actually the personification of death. And she actually remained separated from Dia de los Muertos until the 20th century when Jose Guadalupe Posada created his famous painting called. La Katrina. This painting is of a female skeleton dressed to the nines. The painting was originally intended to criticize upper society. The skeleton itself represented the reduction of each and every person to bones. Essentially, we're all pretty much the same. La Katrina, as she is now called, is much older than Posada's version. Remember when I mentioned Chica Namiklan? Yes. There is a goddess in the land of the dead whose role was to watch over the bones of the dead, and her likeness was always present in any celebration of those who had passed on. So now, when Diego Rivera painted the likeness of La Katrina in a mural linking arms with Posada, as well as his wife, Frida Kahlo, the mural, as well as la katrina became a national treasure so it's no surprise that she was folded into the celebration of day of the dead her skeleton reminds us that death is inescapable yet her smile provides comfort and ease in the face of death and her elegant dress reminds us of the celebration of life oh
0: that's cool
1: isn't that neat i love
0: that I do, too.
1: I think my favorite part of Day of the Dead is the fact that this is a celebration of life. Mm -hmm. This is a way to remember those who have passed so that they don't slip literally forever from this mortal coil.
0: Oh, I agree. And I find something incredibly comforting about this holiday as well. Mm. I do find this a really beautiful, loving holiday.
1: Yeah,
0: This whole journey has been really exciting and very fascinating. And if you would like to know more about some of the themes that we've talked about today, I would like to recommend four of our past episodes. One of them is episode one, our very first one, where we focus on food memories and an exploration of how scent is linked to memory. And that came through for me when we were talking about the orange and the anise and certainly that sweet smell of sugar. I also recommend episode 10, our Super Bowl foods, where we talk about the transitive power of food. And finally, episodes 9 and 15 both have early takes of ours on the foods of the Columbian exchange with many more to come. Yes,
1: and make sure that you stay tuned for th- our next two episodes, which are the two final episodes for the season, one in which we talk about sugar, which will go in way more depth how sugar has impacted cultures, you
0: might get a cavity,
1: might get a cavity. And the second one is our th- third installment
0: Woo-hoo! of our annual <laughs> pie episode for more information about today's episode check out our website at asweeat.com follow us on instagram at as we Eat, and please join our family recipes traditions and food lore community on facebook we are going to be ramping up some conversations about thanksgiving
1: and so you don't miss an episode subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts and if you could spare a couple of minutes away from the sugar skull that you're creating to rate the podcast on Apple Podcast or Podchaser or Spotify, we would be so appreciative. This lets those crazy content robots know that you enjoy the show and hopefully they'll do their robot thing and recommend it to other food enthusiasts.
0: We also published the As We Eat Journal on Substack and we would be so honored if you would support us by becoming a subscriber. We take tasty side trips through vintage recipes, community cookbooks, dish discoveries, and travel stops. There are three subscription tiers. We're sure you'll find one perfect for you at asweeat.substack.com.
1: You've been listening to the As We Eat podcast, part of our curiosity-driven project serving up how food connects, defines, and inspires by blending a bit of research with a dash of humor. <speaking>